0: Second Corinthians chapter 9. The last week I've been in uh, the country of Belize. We have told you about it before we went down there. We did a thing that we called Belize Navidad, play on words, kind of a Christmas program that we would mix with Operation Christmas Child, passing out thousands of the shoeboxes that were sent from people around the world and give them to different people. We were in charge of a bunch. Well, the problem is that the boxes to Belize didn't get through. They're in customs. The government's a little bit different, uh, slower. So we were there. We, our team was able to purchase gifts with some money that we had and, and make something up and still give gifts away. But to give presentations, share the gospel, we did a couple nights of concerts in a Belize City and in a, the capital of Belmapan. And uh, we did a pastor's conference. I thought, since I had a few of my pastors down there, we've been on the radio in Belize for 10 years, and I didn't really think much about it, you know, what the radio show's doing, et cetera. So we thought, let's have a day pastor's conference. Well, we did. It was very well attended. Uh, So many came out who listened to the radio program every day. It is a lifeline, they said to them. But what's interesting is they said, this is a unique conference for two reasons. Number one, it's the largest we've ever had in this area. Even though it's remote, it's hard to get to. You have to cross a a dangling Indiana Jones-type footbridge over a river to get to it. It is the largest we've ever had, the largest attendance. But what makes this even more unique is it's absolutely free. You didn't charge for it. And I said, well, what'd you expect? He said, well, we've had pastor's conferences in the past where they've come and they've charged us for the conference. It's their time, it's what they do, etc. We're used to paying money to go to a pastor's conference. We're used to paying money to go to a concert. You guys provided this for us free. They were elated, but they couldn't believe it. They kept thinking, what's the catch? When are you going to take the offering? We said, we're not here to take an offering, we're to offer ourselves to you. One of the statements that I made during the conference, they really liked in lieu of that. We talked about some of the distinctives of our fellowship, and we talked about finances. And I said, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about money. The Bible has a lot to say about our resources. The Bible has a lot to say about giving. But it doesn't talk about it as much as some preachers talk about it. Some preachers talk about it in every sermon, as if the Bible talks about it all the time. And they liked that. That resonated with them. They loved the idea that ministry could just be this open-hearted freedom to give myself to another person, out of love for Christ. The Smith family was proud of its heritage. They sought to compile a family history that that they could pass down to their children for generations to come, that they could find out their roots, find out what country they were from, talk about the immigration and the migration of of all of the different family members. Well, they put this thing together and there was only one real problem and that is one of the uncles in the past had been executed in, in the electric chair. And they didn't know how they were going to deal with that in the proud heritage and legacy they wanted to leave. Well, the historian that was compiling the family tree said, no problem, I'm good at twisting the phrase just right and I can make Uncle George shine. Well, when he came to Uncle George in the family history, he spun it this way. George Smith occupied a chair of applied electronics at a very important government institution. In fact, the historian went on to say, he was so attached to his position by the strongest of ties that when he died it came as a real shock. He spun the phrase beautifully, but the fact of the matter is Uncle George was electrocuted for a capital crime. No matter how you spin it, the truth is the truth. No matter how some preachers spin giving, how nice they doctor it up or how much pressure they apply in their message, some still get the feeling... I'm being manipulated, I'm being used, all they want is my money. I've discovered that this leaves a bad taste in the spiritual mouths of unbelievers, so much so, and you've heard it as well, that people say, oh, well, all they care about is money, they're going to ask for money. Whether it's a television program or a crusade or it's a church, they're going to bring it up, and they're going to push for it. And that's why we have always sought to maintain a lower key instead of an emphasis. That's why we started in the Lakes Apartments, as some of you remember, maybe a couple of you who were back there, we used a Folgers coffee can. Put a little slit in top and made mention. There's a Folgers coffee can. If you decide you'd want to support this Bible study the rent of the Lakes Apartment Clubhouse, the coffee that we're buying, etc., feel free. And we left it at that. And when we moved from the Lakes Apartments into the theater, we needed more, so we got two coffee cans. And we we moved to the next place and then into this place. Coffee cans just don't work, so we have these little wooden boxes called agape boxes. I never want to be accused of making an issue out of money. And the times we have taken an offering, we've taken it for others who are in need, other ministries, other people, others that God placed on our hearts. Well, Paul is doing that. He's been talking about that in chapter 8 and he moves now on into chapter 9 and he speaks about the giving to the saints in Jerusalem. Now. I do want to cover the other side of the truth that I just spoke about. Some people speak so much about money and it leaves a bad taste. The flip side of the coin, however, because we could say, yeah, right on, man. Preach it, bro. (laughs) And we would delight in the fact of that message because we just don't want to give anything. And the fact of the matter is, you can also tell a person's level of spirituality by how they deal with things materially. I've discovered something. The most sensitive part of a person's anatomy is their pocketbook. You mess with that, you touch that, and you will invite the ire and the bitterness sometimes of a lot of folks. Who simply are stingy, are self-centered, are skeptical of anything and everything that they just refuse to give to anyone except themselves. They tithe to themselves. Jesus said, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. Thus, how we deal with our treasure is a good gauge, a benchmark of where our heart is spiritually. Well, let's just jump into chapter 9 now concerning the ministering to the saints. It is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast, to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and to prepare your bountiful gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. On Paul's third trip, his what we call missionary journey, where he traveled to the churches he established and then he would cover a little bit of new territory, he established churches, he would go over to sort of reaffirm their founding, teach, encourage Uh, set in order things that were lacking, or commission others to do so. On his third missionary journey, uh, he took on a project. It was a financial project. He was taking an offering, and the offering wasn't for himself, as we said. It was for the church in Jerusalem, the mother church. That's what we called it last time in chapter 8. Everything sprung out of Jerusalem. That was sort of the root of... The Gentiles were the branches grafted in. But now the root, the the mother church, the church in Jerusalem was suffering. The temple jobs were in jeopardy. People were unemployed. They had been persecuted. They were discouraged. They needed financial help. So Paul raised money from the branches to give back to the root from the Gentile churches. Paul was sent out originally from Jerusalem, commissioned by that church, he founded this great set of churches through Asia Minor and through Macedonia and Achaia, that whole region. And he's taking an offering for two reasons A, to help the church in Jerusalem financially, and B, to prove to those in Jerusalem that he was not against Moses, he was not against the law, he was not against Judaism. He was accused of that. This would sort of disprove that whole notion because. He's bringing money back into the city of Jerusalem, the Jewish capital. He's encouraging that whole system of Jewish believers financially. And hopefully that would put sort of an end to those rumors that were going around about Paul the Apostle. Well, the Corinthians, he mentions, were willing. And in chapter 8, he said, You were willing last year. A year ago, you told Titus... My buddy, my fellow minister, the one that I sent to you, you told him, you committed to him your willingness to get involved financially. You said, Titus, right on, man. Include us in this project. We want to help. We're on board. Well, Paul is very gently, very tactfully, I would say, stirring them up, reminding them. You know, it's one thing to make a commitment, to make a pledge. It's another thing to follow through with that, like a golf swing. You keep your eye on the ball. You address the ball. That's what they call it by coming down on it with a club. But the instructor will always tell you what is of utmost importance is that you follow through all the way with your swing and your body. It's the same in a tennis swing. It's the same in almost any sport as that follow-through. And so you've made a commitment a year ago. Now it's time to follow through. Look in verse 1. He says, concerning the ministering to the saints. Diakonia is the word for ministry. The word deacon comes from that. It means to uh, assist someone by serving them. Now, he calls financial giving ministering. I've always uh, disdained the way the term ministry has been treated by some. Oh, you're a minister, reverend. We're all ministers, and we have different gifts. We contribute in different ways with our talents, with our spiritual gifts, with our energy, with our time, with our finances. And here he calls the financial gift to the saints of Jerusalem, ministry. Now, concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. You're an example to others. I've been bragging about you, I've been telling others about you, boasting that Achaia, that's that southern region of Greece, including that lower part of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And Corinth was right uh, at the crossroads between uh, the upper part and that lower peninsula, right there, that, that area of Achaia. You've been so willing to give, and I've been bragging about you to others. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Now, here was the idea. Paul didn't want to go... Corinth, which was his plan, get there and have this unfinished business of the offering. He didn't want to be there and take the offering personally. He wanted it to be done so he could just come and have the freedom to minister. So he was sending people in advance to take care of this stuff, lest it became embarrassing so he wouldn't have to stand up in front of the congregation and say, oh, uh, listen. Concerning this whole idea of giving, we need to get this offering. Let's take it right now. He didn't, he didn't want the embarrassment for himself or for them. So, people were to collect it in advance. Lest, if some Macedonians come with me, those in the north, the people that I've been bragging to about you, find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of all of this confident bragging or boasting that I've done. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort or to encourage the brethren to go ahead of time and to prepare, prepare your bountiful gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it might be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Why the delay? Why a year delay? Uh, we may just pass over this and think, okay, they promised it a year ago and it's taken them a year. Keep in mind that the Corinthian church was an immature church, spiritually. And there were several marks of that. We've already discussed them in 1 Corinthians and part of 2 Corinthians. There was division in the church. Paul called it carnal. There was doctrinal problems over the resurrection. There was the misuse of spiritual gifts, tongue speaking and prophecy in the public assembly that caused real rifts in division. They were drunk at the communion table. There were all of these problems that marked it as an immature church. And part of the immaturity is seen in this area of giving. As I mentioned, you can tell a person uh, by what he does with his treasure. You can tell a level of spirituality. Take a tour of somebody's checkbook. And you'll notice the things that he or she spends money on And those things say, this is what is important to me in my life. This is what I value. This is what I treasure. Where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. Same with the church. And so is it generous or is it self-centered? Are we individually generous or are we self-consumed? I think I've told you before about that church way down south. Justin was mentioning Mississippi. It was probably somewhere around that area. And uh, down in the south, the preaching is wonderfully colorful, filled with metaphor and simile, and uh, uh, it, there's almost a sing-song rhythm that goes with it. Well, in one sermon, the pastor was giving his three points this way. He said... This church needs to be like the lame man in the New Testament and get up and walk. He was speaking about the progress we need to make spiritually. And everybody was amening. Amen, said a few. Let it walk, preacher. Let it walk. And people clap. (laughs) Woo! They got into it. Then he made his second point. And this church has to be like Elijah the prophet on his way to Mount Carmel. It's got to get up and run. And they got even more excited, amen brother, let it run, let it run. And then he made his third point, and and this church needs to mount up with wings of eagles and fly and soar, and they started getting whipped up into a frenzy, yeah, yeah, let it it fly, let it soar. Then he said, now if this church is going to fly, if it's going to soar, it's going to take money and there was a dead pause. And somebody said, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. Well, Paul wanted them to fly. They wanted to walk. It's been a year. And Paul is very tactfully, and, and, and that's something to notice about his approach. You know, he could have said, you stinking Corinthians." Man, you're, you're so out of whack when it comes to spiritual gifts, and you're out of whack when it comes to giving. He doesn't do that. He just said, you mentioned it a year ago, and it's time to give. It's time to do this thing. Let's get it taken care of. And, and notice his wording. It's very important. Prepare, verse 5, your bountiful gift. Eulagion. That's the Greek word. Eulagion. Blessing. Benediction. I want this to be a blessing to them in Jerusalem and a blessing for you. And notice what goes with that, that it might be as ready as a matter of generosity, the end of verse 5, and not as a grudging obligation. Paul did not want the Corinthians to feel that this offering he was taking was under pressure. They weren't to feel squeezed because of it, pressured because of it but to feel like, I'm doing this out of love. I want this to be a blessing. I want to do it for the right reason. And Paul wanted them to do it for the right reason. That it would be not of a a, a pressured, a squeezed kind of a thing where you have to just take a sponge and squeeze that last drop of water out of it. But that it would be a bountiful gift from a generous heart. There are really four ways to give. Number one, you can give out of duty. you have to do it. It's your Christian obligation. I grew up with that term. It's your Christian obligation. We called it our Sunday obligation. You had to go to church on Sunday. And you had to put something in the offering. Why? Well, because it's your duty. God doesn't want you to give because it's your duty. You give taxes every year because it's your duty. Nobody looks forward to tax time. Oh, I can't wait. April's coming up. All right. I get to pay the government. Hallelujah. You're a nut if you think that way. It's duty. It's commanded by Scripture, but it's not. You just got to do it. There's a second reason why you can give. Self-satisfaction. Some people give to a cause because... It makes them feel good. I don't know, but every time I do it, I I just feel good inside. Well, that's better than the first motive. Self-satisfaction, that that feeling of I'm contributing, I'm helping, I'm doing, and thus I feel good about myself is better than doing it out of duty, but it's not the highest motivation. Prestige is the third reason. I want to be known for something. I want to be known as a giver. And these people love to give especially when others know they've given it. And they make a point of letting you know how much they've given and that they have given. They want to buttress or fortify their reputation of being generous. Prestige. And uh, many organizations play into this motivation of prestige and will promise, if you give, we'll put a plaque up that will have your name on it or the name of your foundation that will honor you, bring the glory to you. The fourth reason to give is out of love. That's the highest motivation, agape love. This um, is where you don't see it as an obligation, you see it as an opportunity. Focus isn't on yourself, it is genuinely on the other person and genuinely a love for God. I love you, I love God, and I want to do it for love. It is a freeing way to do things. And it is a blessing. It is more blessed, the Lord Jesus said, to give than it is to receive. That's the highest motivation, not a grudging obligation. Look at verse 8, oh, excuse me, verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Now he uses the analogy of a farmer. Put a little seed down, you get a little crop. Put a lot of seed down, you're going to get a lot of crop. It's basic farming technology. The more you put in the soil, the more you're going to get. That's a physical law. That's an agricultural truth. Everybody knew it. The the idea is you blanket the ground with a healthy, bountiful supply of seed. Why? Because then the harvest comes and you're going to be set. That is also not only a physical law but it's also a spiritual truth and a spiritual law. It is equally as binding as the physical law. Spiritual laws or spiritual truths are just as binding in their cause and effect as physical laws. I don't understand all physical laws. I don't understand electricity. I believe it. I've studied it. I don't know exactly if the electrons flow through the wire or around the wire. I don't know if uh, the electricity is and the electrons are particles or wavelength. I'm not completely sure. I don't completely understand it. But I believe it and I use it. I flip the switch on. I don't stand there and go, no, wait a minute. Before I flip the switch, I have to completely get it. (laughs) I just ah, enjoy it. Gravity is a physical law. I respect it. (laughs) I believe it. I don't completely understand the spiritual law of giving and receiving, but it is a spiritual law. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will men give to your bosom. For whatever measure you used, it will be used back again to you. Spiritual truth. Proverbs 11. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds for himself, but he has little in the end. But the generous soul, says the proverb, will be made rich, and he who waters will himself be watered. Now, I, I don't completely understand that. In fact, the natural person would say, don't waste your money and give it to some spiritual cause. Don't waste your money and give it to the church. Don't waste your money and give it to missions. You can use it for important stuff. You don't want to scatter it. You don't want to get rid of it. You may want a DVD player, or you may want a new refrigerator, or you you, you may want a new set of clothes. Of course, the Bible isn't against using finances for yourself or having finances. But here's that principle. If you... Sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. When I was a a boy, my my parents had a garden. I told you that I'm not much of a gardener. My mom was pretty good at it. My dad was actually very good at it. Well, there was one little area that we were in charge of, the kids. It was the watermelon patch. And and we put in a few seeds. And uh, we didn't get very much. We sowed sparingly, and we reaped very sparingly. And so we decided that when we would eat the watermelon, we would have a seed-spitting contest, the boys, the four boys in that area. Same area of the watermelon patch. We'd be out there eating it, break it open, eat it, and we'd see how far we could spit it. Well, now we started sowing bountifully through spitting our seeds on the ground. There were 10 and 20 and hundreds of these things. The next year and the year after that, we were reaping bountifully. The more you put in, the more you get out. Law of the harvest. So, verse 7, because of that, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, Nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that, or uh, toward you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, He has dispersed abroad, He has given to the poor, His righteousness remains forever. Verse 7 goes deeper into this whole thing of, of why we do what we do, why we give, how we minister, how we use our money, motivation. Now here the analogy breaks down, the analogy of giving like sowing seed and reaping a harvest. It breaks down because when it comes to farming, motivation doesn't matter. You, don't, you can go out to a field and have a very bad motivation. You'd never come in from farming and say, I don't think anything's going to grow because I had an evil heart when I went to work today. It doesn't matter. As long as you meet all of the necessary conditions of soil and temperature and water, etc., fertilize that thing, the motivation doesn't matter. You can do it purely out of pride, purely out of financial gain, and you'll grow a harvest. But spiritually, it does matter. Spiritually, it does matter. You all know the principle when David was selected as one of the sons of Jesse to be the king. And the prophet came in and God told him, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. And so that analogy breaks down. That's what he's kind of moving into a deeper level here in verse 7. So let each one give, and here's the motive, as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You can give the wrong way and you can give the right way, and this verse tells you both ways. Here's the wrong way first of all, grudgingly, grudgingly, out of compulsion reluctantly. Oh, I don't really want to, but I will. Paul says, don't give that way. Not out of compulsion, not grudgingly. One translation says, with pain. Have you ever heard, I have, somebody say, now brothers and sisters, you need to dig deep and give till it hurts. Paul's saying the opposite. It shouldn't hurt. Not with pain. That's not to say there's no sacrifice involved. David, when he gave to God and bought the threshing floor of Arana, he said, I'm not going to give God something that costs me nothing. There was still a sacrifice involved. There was still a cost involved, but it wasn't grudging. It didn't pain him to do it. It was willing. Not grudgingly, not out of compulsion, not reluctantly, not with pain. In fact, if you are, are thinking, man, I, I need to give this. I haven't given in a while. I've got to put this in the offering. But there's so many things I could do with this. I don't really want to do it. Keep it. Hold on to it. I mean, I can imagine you give a couple hundred bucks to something, and then you're in heaven, and maybe you remind God, hey, God, Where's that reward for, for, for that $200 I gave? God will say, well, your griping wiped it out. <laughs> you complained so often about that and so many people heard you, you really got your reward because they acknowledged you. Don't do it grudgingly. How would you like it? If somebody gave you a gift at Christmas grudgingly, I bought you a gift. You know, I I really don't want to give it to you, but who could take it anyway? Go ahead. It's my duty. And I feel so good about myself when I give you this gift. You'd say, keep it, man. It's really neat. In fact, oh, could I have it back? I'd like it. You wouldn't want it. And Paul says, God doesn't want it. Number 2 the wrong way to give nor of necessity. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly nor of necessity. Have you ever felt pressured to give? Have you ever heard hype that pressured you into give, if you don't give to this ministry this week, this month, we're going to fold, we're going to go under. And so you go, "Oh man, That's a load of guilt. And you know, pressure works, guilt works. It's a very, very useful motivation. And that's why so many ministries turn to it, resort to it, because it does work. I've always felt that if God's in it, it's not going to fold. If God's not in it, it ought to fold. So let God take care of it. You should give the right way, and here's the right way, willingly. As you purpose in your heart. As you purpose in your heart. Now notice something about this, and you find this pretty much throughout the Scripture. An amount is not given. He didn't say, you you ought to give $432.62, or shekels. (laughs) Nor is there a percentage given. 10% isn't mentioned, that's tithe. that's Old Testament, not New Testament. By the way, so many people mistake the whole tithe of the Old Testament as if it's just a tenth. Well, it was a tenth, but there were three tithes that they took. Some years that equaled to 30%. But in the New Testament, there is not an amount, there is not a percentage. I don't have the right to dictate to you how much you're to give. I don't have the right to tell you to pledge a certain amount for the year. It's not my business. And that's why I make it my business to make the finances of the church none of my business. I generally know what is given in totality, but I never look at what is given specifically. Because that would hinder the relationship I have if I looked and said, Wow, that's a lot of money. Who is that again? (laughs) Oh, pay him a visit. Or, that's all they give? (laughs) Cheapskate? Then every time I meet you, I kind of look at you like, I don't want that. It's between you and God. So when you get a paycheck, you have your own little meeting with your heart. And, And you determine, you purpose in your heart. You pray about it. Willingly. I do that. I have my own convictions, but I don't impose my convictions on anybody else. Some religious systems actually send out bills every month to the congregations because of the Old Testament tithe. Absolutely. But my wife and I, we we've, we've purposed certain truths about what we will do with our money. What is the first check that we write? What is the second and the third and the fourth? And then whatever's and people go, "I have to give 10%, you know, that's sort of the magic number." And if that is your magic number, look at it in reverse. God lets you keep 90% (laughs) because you know what? It's all His. 10% isn't His, 100% is His, but boy, He lets you keep a lot of it. So as you purpose in your heart, willingly, then secondly, cheerfully, ooh, this is the hard part, because the Greek word hilarion is hilarious. You are to give hilariously to the Lord. Have you ever met a hilarious giver? I've met a lot of hilarious receivers. (laughs) But a true, hilarious, joyful, ah, it's an opportunity, man. Take it. God bless you. God loves, it doesn't mean God hates those who don't give with this motivation, but that is high on God's heart of, of Special affection, you might say. God loves or God prefers a cheerful giver. And you know what? I have been more provoked in my giving by watching generous, joyful, hilarious givers than all of the guilt and manipulation that anybody can push on me. Just show me somebody who is genuinely generous, and that provokes me to good works. So that is the motivation. That's the wrong way to give and the right way to give, all in one verse. You're not to give grudgingly. You're not to give out of necessity because it's just a need only. But you're to give as you purpose in your heart, willingly. And you are to give joyfully. Uh, Keep a marker here, if you would, and go to the Old Testament book of uh, Exodus, the 25th chapter. Exodus chapter 25. I'll tell you why I'm turning here because we're going to get a peek at the very first offering taken by God's people. And God commanded this. But I want you to know something. I want you to notice how it's done. And would to God that more churches and organizations and ministers would look at this as a precedent. Because this is God speaking. Exodus chapter 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly, with his heart, you shall take my offering." There it is. There's the rule of first mention. God is taking an offering, but God wants it willingly. God wants it from the heart, not grudgingly, not of necessity. Same principle. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple. This is for the building of the tabernacle. Verse 8, that I may dwell among them. Now turn over to chapter 35. Go ten chapters to the right. Verse 20, And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all of its service, And for the holy garments, they came both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings, nose rings. That's what it says. (laughs) Amen, sister. Nose rings. There it is. It's in the Word. I can do it. Rings and necklaces. But they gave it to the Lord. All jewelry of gold, that is, every man who offered an offering of gold to the Lord. And then look over in chapter 36, verse 2. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred, to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of service, making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. All the craftsmen who were doing the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing, and they spoke to Moses, saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave commandment. They caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained (laughs) from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Their heart was so willing, it was so hilarious, that... Moses had to say, stop giving all of the work that God wanted to be done. And by the way, you ought to look sometime at an equivalent of what it would cost to rebuild the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the gold, the silver amounts, unbelievable amounts of millions of dollars. Enough. Enough. That's what happens when you get willing people together. When, when, One of the questions at this conference, and I get it everywhere, now wait a minute, if you don't make money an issue and you don't take a formal offering and you don't make pledge weekends a high priority, how do you get stuff done? How do those boxes that you speak about actually work? A willing heart, that's how. A willing heart. We believe that what the Lord provides, that's what we'll work with, that's what the Lord has given us. And we're content with it, that that's what God has set before us. So, God doesn't want us to do it with a sad heart, grudgingly, with a mad heart of necessity, but with a glad heart, hilariously. And so all the work of the Lord was done. Now let's go back and finish off the chapter. Verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things. Notice how many times that's used. That's a lot, all. May have an abundance for every good work. May See the word grace there? That is a synonym in verse 8 for financial resources. It's a beautiful way to put it. God is able, in your giving generously to the church of Jerusalem, God is able to bless you and give back. As you sow, you will reap much more. Now, it's not always material blessings. And by the way, our motivation should never be to get. Well, I'm doing this. I'm giving my seed faith offering so that I'll get more money. I'm giving five, so I'll get 10. I'm giving 200, so I'll get 2,000. No, that is not to be the motivation. That is seeing God as a stockbroker. I'm investing in God's stocks. (laughs) Jesus never said, when you pray, say, Our cashier who art in heaven. (laughs) Many times, the blessings are better than material blessings. Ephesians chapter 1, God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in heavenly places, and he lists them. takes him a whole chapter, two chapters to list them. But his point is that God is able to provide for you, and he says, calls it grace. Everything that you need, God will provide. As you give, God will provide for you. God will take care of you. That's a principle, and it's a principle... Uh, That, unfortunately, has been, A, misunderstood, B, misused. I want you to turn somewhere else now to uh, Philippians chapter 4 for just a moment because you need and I need to be refreshed by this principle. Philippians chapter 4, the very uh, sort of middle of chapter 4, Look at verse 15. Now, you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. You're the only guys that supported my ministry of evangelism. You did it. No other church did. You did. For even in Thessalonica, you did send aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift. But I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Boy, has that verse been a comfort through the ages. Has that verse been used so often in times of great need, to comfort believers who are looking to the future very tenuously. My God will supply all your need. However, how often that verse has been taken out of context and misused. You know, every text has a context. And if you want to understand a text, you have to understand the context, what comes with or around the text. And the context of verse 18 is all that I have just read. It is not a blanket statement to anyone. It is a statement to the church, to the Christian who has generously given to the work of the gospel. Paul didn't write this to the Thessalonians. He didn't write this to the Colossians. But he wrote it to the Philippians who had generously given once and again. And my God will supply all your need. Now, notice something. Verse 18, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. See that word full? Plerao is the word he chose to be full, to be filled, to have abundance. I am filled with abundance. I am full. Having received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. Now look at verse 19. And my God shall supply. The same word is used. The same root word of plerao. In other words, as I have been made full by you, God will fill you. God will supply for you. You've been so overabundant to the work of the gospel, the mission that God has called me to. God's going to be overabundant with you. God's going to treat you as fully as you have treated me. And that is also then the idea back in 2 Corinthians 9. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And to fortify that thought, he quotes the Old Testament, Psalm 112. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness remains forever. Psalm 112, I wish we had time to look at it. Go home and read that tonight. It's a description of a man who's generous. Giving to others, and God blesses his life. He's giving as a result of God blessing, and he's, a, he's, a, he's a, giving to be a blessing to others. And God, in turn, blesses him even more. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown, there's that farmer analogy again, and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. God's going to bless you. God's going to fill you up. God's going to shower the blessings upon you that you have showered on others. It's that principle that Jesus gave. Give, and it will be given unto you. Luke chapter 6. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many to thanks many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, Paul was given to fits of exuberation, praise. Uh, these little statements, you find them sort of laced in his writings. He, he brings out a principle, and then he just sort of pauses and he says, ah, oh, praise God, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. What's he referring to? Jesus Christ. Here's his point, I think. You, Corinthians, have made a promise that you want to help your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Good. That's great. Let's do it now. Because God doesn't just talk about giving. God shows his love by giving. Giving is the language of love as seen by God, John three sixteen For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And that's what I think Paul is referring to when he says, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Giving is the language of love. When we were down in Belize this last week, one evening we were eating Chinese food in a restaurant. We had uh, our group, part of our team. We had a couple of people who were helping us from the area, and a couple of those people were. Belizean. They were Anglo-Saxon, German, Mennonite. They spoke fluent German in a Central American country. The name of their village was Spanish Lookout. They spoke fluent German. They came from a strict Mennonite background, but they'd been listening to the radio show and they just fell in love with Bible teaching. And they kept staring at me and my son Nathan, They kept looking at us, and the next day at breakfast And uh, they told one of our team why they were doing it. They said, in our community, the way fathers raise their sons is to be distant with their son, to never show real intimacy or affection. It's just the way that we've been raised, that I show my love by just providing for you, not really giving you my time. And I was, you know, rubbing Nathan's head, rubbing his shoulders. We were playing around. They were just amazed. They said, we want to study this. To see how a father and son are to get together and get along and that language of love. The father gave the ultimate language of love. He gave his son. He showered us, the world, with the ultimate gift. And so, because God has been so generous to us, it should flow from us. The analogy of this I always give in Israel when we take a tour, because you can see it in one day. We start at the Sea of Galilee one day and we go down to the Dead Sea on the same day. It's the only two bodies of water inside the single country of Israel. It's two bodies of water supplied by the same river, Jordan. But one of those bodies of water, the Sea of Galilee, is filled with life. Children play around it. You can fish on it. Uh, Farms are built around it. It's living. The Dead Sea as implied by its name is dead. You don't see much activity around it. You don't see lots of children playing at 1,300 feet below sea level in 140-degree heat. You just don't see that. It's not a place where you go fishing. It's dead. The reason isn't the source of water. It's the flow of water. The Sea of Galilee has an inlet and an outlet. It takes in the Jordan River, and then it takes it out. Every drop that comes in goes out. The Dead Sea has only an inlet, no outlet. It takes it in, it's evaporated by the sun, minerals are deposited at its depth and on its shores, but it is dead because it only takes in, it never gives out. It's a parable of Christianity. You want to be filled with life? All the blessings God gives to you? Start dispersing them hilariously. Woohoo! All right! That's hilarious. You'll be filled with life. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. By the way, did you know that giving is the only thing in the Bible God commands you to test him with? You know, the Bible says you shall not test the Lord your God. You won't tempt him. Jesus made that point with Lucifer when he tried to say, Hey, throw yourself down. Hey, make these stones become bread. Jesus said, As it is written, you will not test the Lord your God. But there is one area God commands you to test him in, Malachi chapter 3. It's the area of giving, tithes and offerings it's called in Malachi. Test me and see in this. And see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out upon you a blessing that you're not even able to handle. All belongs to God. You pray, you purpose in your heart, and that's how you give. I'll never dictate you the amount nor the percentage that's between you and God. But in closing tonight, if if you have a dollar bill, I want you to take it out. Take it out right now. Just take it out and hold it for a minute. Don't worry. I'm not going to collect it. (laughs) But I want you to hold it while I read this to you, and we'll close with this. You're thinking, he's never done this before. (laughs) Pretty soon he's going to say, and there are 10 people with $5,000. I'm not going to do that. Just hold the dollar bill. If If the dollar bill that you hold in your hand could speak, it might say something like this. You hold me in your hand and you call me yours. Yet, may I not as well call you mine? See how easily I rule you. To gain me you would all but die. I am invaluable as rain, essential as water. Without me men and institutions would die, yet I do not hold the power of life for them. I am futile without the stamp of your desire. I go nowhere unless you send me. I keep strange company. For me men mock, love, scorn, yet... I am appointed to the service of the saints to give education to the growing mind and food to the starving bodies of the poor. My power is terrific. Handle me carefully and wisely, lest you become my servant rather than I yours."